This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hi, I'm Amy Farley, Senior Editor at Fast Company. We're taking a look at some of our favorite moments from the 2021 Fast Company Innovation Festival. Here's a conversation that goes beyond recycling to talk about reshaping supply chains with Stuart Landsberg, co-founder and CEO of Grove Collaborative, Alex Totterman, founder and CEO of Cove, and Lee Allen Dreschler, Senior Vice President of Platform Innovation and Corporate R&D at Procter & Gamble. Welcome and thanks for joining. My name is Kristen Toussaint. I'm a staff editor at Fast Company. And today we're gonna to be talking about the issue of packaging and packaging waste. Every year we produce more than 300 million tons of plastic and a significant portion of that, some 40%, comes from packaging. So the consumer packaged goods industry, which makes the things that fill our bathroom shelves and our laundry room and our kitchen cupboards is a really big part of this problem. Recycling is clearly not cutting it when it comes to reducing this waste. We only recycle about 14% of plastic packaging. So today I'm so excited to talk about packaging alternatives moving beyond recycling and what we can actually do to address this problem. To do that, I'm joined by three innovative panelists, Stu Landisberg, co-founder and CEO of Grove Collaborative, Alex Totterman, founder and CEO of Cove, and Lee Ellen Dreschler, SVP of Corporate R&D at Procter & Gamble. Thank you all so much for joining me. I gave really quick introductions of all of your titles. So to begin, I'd love to hear each of you just quickly touch on how you're actually thinking about this problem and what you're doing in your roles. Uh, just to start changing the packaging game. Uh, Stu, would you like to start? Sure. Uh, I'm Stu Landisberg, co-founder and CEO of Grove. Grove's vision is that consumer products will be a positive force for human and environmental health. And I think if you look out at the impact that the home and personal care industry, in particular the industries we play in, have had on the environment, a big part of the negative footprint has been driven by our reliance on forever garbage, basically, for the packaging in our category. And so as we look out as a brand and a company that has a strong desire to reshape the industry, we see packaging and especially single-use plastic packaging as perhaps the single key issue that we need to solve more urgently than many others, both because of the size of the impact is the biggest and the size of the crisis is the biggest. And the approach that we've taken is multi-step. And so we today look to innovate across product forms to make products smaller, so they require less packaging, to move products out of plastic packaging into packaging that's either aluminum or glass or paper, more readily recyclable, as you mentioned, or to find formats that take a product that's disposable and make it durable and reusable. And in all three of those ways, we look to address the overall impact that packaging has in our industry. Great, thank you. Um, Alex? Sure, well, I'm glad to be here, really excited for this discussion uh, at the Innovation Festival. So for several years, uh, our team at Cove has been focused on innovation in this issue of plastic pollution. We're a material innovation company, and uh, really our belief is that this issue can only be solved with material innovation uh, by finding renewable, circular, biodegradable alternatives to single-use plastics. So. Uh, the first product we've developed is a fully biodegradable water bottle made of a material called PHA that we'll be releasing later this fall, first in California and then across the U.S. Awesome. And Lee Ellen. 
Yeah, thanks. This is it's amazing to be here. Um, you know, PNG is a huge company. We we uh, we de- deliver products and packages to billions of consumers every day. Um, so I I work across products, packages, every business that we have to make things as sustainable as possible and really address you know single use plastics and waste and and all the ways already described here um i think my unique challenge in this room is i have to do it on a massive scale um and i and that's you know both hard and also exciting because once we crack this problem we can really make progress fast you know in every region of the world so you know my my whole job is to find ways to do that with recycling with durable packages um with things that don't require maybe any packaging. Um, So it's, you know, if I look from the two to 10 plus year um, timeframe, I think we have a lot of promising kind of solutions. You brought up scale and that's something that is so interesting across all these panelists. You're at such different positions within the CPG ecosystem. And so Lee Ellen, like you said, you are tasked with coming at this from within a large company that has these, you know, legacy brands that consumers already know and love and most probably importantly are familiar with, right? So what are some of the challenges the challenges there? And are there advantages to that as well? Yeah, you know, there's both. I think some of the challenges are, you're right, people are very familiar. They have habits, you know, across all of their daily lives. And we participate in a lot of those. Um, and you know, people have been doing things much the same way for years. So one of the things that I like to think about whenever I say, like, what package should I be designing? You know, how can I be plastic free or how can I make the the most efficient, you know, whatever material it is, is do my consumers have to change habits to use it? And if that's true, which it often is, um, how can I make that an amazing experience for them? So it's it's not just a matter of making the same product in a better package often. It's it's giving people this like delightful experience that they they crave then and they're they're willing to change habits, which is both great for them and great for sustainability. And Alex, like you said, you are starting from scratch, you know, coming at this right now hyper focused on a, a specific product. Why did you feel that that was the route you needed to take? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, as Lee Allen says, this, this is a huge issue, and I think that that's totally right. That the uh, the key to this to solving this problem is by uh, you know evolving the materials we're using today, rather than evolving the mechanisms or the delivery mechanisms we're using. Uh, a lot of the time, there's exciting kind of innovations going on in refillables or zero waste, and that definitely has a part. But the scale of this problem is just too big to, and and the timeline is too short for us to kind of get everyone in the world to suddenly climb this mountain of getting to a reusable economy. Um, I think that, that there's no reason that consumer products can't be a great force for good. Um, for instance, with PHA, one of the reasons we find it so exciting is that the feedstocks used to create this material uh, can be bio-waste or greenhouse gases. So you potentially end up in, a, in a, a situation where these products could be net positive, that by buying them, you're actually capturing pollution. And then the end of life, I mean, PHA has every potential end of life, hypothetically, the recycling will take some time. But um, yeah, I totally agree that it's it's all about making this as easy as possible. And I think that's the premise for us is taking the friction out of this for consumers so that they can do the right thing without having to you know adapt their whole life. Um, 
And the reason we started with the water bottle is that, like Stuart was saying earlier, packaging is one of the fastest growing, most detrimental parts of this problem. 40% of our plastic is a pack, is, is packaging. Um, so it's uh, it's a big problem and, and the water bottle is kind of symbolic and it's a very difficult application to replace. So I think we were looking for something with high velocity that was impactful. And that's the approach we're going to take with every product we develop. We're going after the most polluting items that allow consumers to switch from plastic. And our goal is to accelerate the adoption from large companies so that one day Lee Allen's looking at introducing PHA or partnering with small companies like ours. And Stu, you're really sort of in the middle of this, right? You're both uh, a marketplace for other brands, but you're coming up with your own products as well. Uh, what, why that hybrid approach? You know, what has that allowed you to do that maybe sticking in one lane wouldn't have? It's a great question. And so the, the second word in our name is collaborative, which I think really speaks to the, the approach that we have here, which is that no one company, no one technology, no one anything will get sort of us over the plastic environmental crisis that we have or any of the packaging waste issues that we have. And so I think we look at our ability to provide partnership, provide traffic, and help be a positive force in and a proof point that sustainability works for a lot of our partners. And so we we expect to drive a lot of the innovation that will move folks away from whatever format they're using today into a more sustainable one. We, we fully expect to launch a lot of those products. But I also believe that, you know, there's probably someone within Proctor and a bunch of other great organizations who's working on some extraordinary innovation that we're going to want to help bring to our consumers as well. And so I think being able to straddle the line there gives us great access to consumers, but allows us to participate in the change in a bit more of an agnostic way. And the company's vision really is about how do we create this change almost indifferent to the way in which it happens? Because I think there are a lot of different paths to glory here. And it's one of the things that makes me optimistic is we see many different type of innovations, some of which drive big consumer change and consumers love it, others of which sort of fall right in line with consumer habits that are being adopted at some scale. And so I think you know, the opportunity to participate across the various ways in which habits are shifting is one that's been been helpful for Grove. And I think it's ultimately helpful in driving as broad adoption as possible of the innovations we bring to market. Now, if this problem were easy, it would already be solved, right? So I wanted to hear if anyone has a story of a sort of you know, packaging or R&D failure, just something that that did not work. And, and what does that tell us about, you know, how big this problem really is? I'm happy to go on this one. I mean, for us, we're uh, obviously focused on we're predominantly a technology company. I mean, we're in the consumer goods space, but uh, most of our employees are focused on R&D. And, uh, you know, also, especially when we're trying to replace a plastic bottle, which is very durable, the mechanical and uh, the material properties of plastic are very advantageous to a water bottle that needs to go through distribution, be dropped, uh, even in its filling. There's a lot of requirements for products like this. And uh, that's something that I think people overlook is that, uh, and I did certainly when I started this uh, kind of journey a few years ago. Um, but PHA, that's a lot of our work is a lot of R&D is basically trying to mimic the desirable qualities of plastic, but without the uh, kind of destructive environmental downsides at end of life. Um, I think that uh, there's a lot of really exciting uh, promise with with something like PHA, but also it's not to be expected to happen overnight. There is definitely going to be a process of getting this material to perform like a plastic um, that you'd find on a shelf today. Um, but very quickly, I mean, 
We have water bottles now that perform similarly to a consumer as a plastic bottle would. Um, it's not see-through, but some of the, the failures we've had along the way are just simply trying to mold PHA. It's very difficult to mold. There's a reason that there's not a lot of uh, these products in the market. It's it's a new material. It's very difficult to, to mold. So our goal is really to do a lot of that work and hopefully show the way. So there's kind of a case study and a sort of consumer demand for this. I mean, that's ultimately what's going to drive the change. It's consumer demand. If, if uh, the most compelling products are sustainable, the most demand is going towards the sustainable products, then the rest of the industry will follow. It's just, I think there's a free market appetite there, but there hasn't been those technology leaps which allow consumers to get their hands on things like this. So that's that's really kind of what we're singularly focused on. I'm happy to, to piggyback on it. I think we see a little bit of a different approach, which is if you look at you know the typical product you buy at your grocery store or Target or wherever, you know, you're probably buying version, and Lee Allen can speak to this even better than I, version, you know, two or 300 of that product, right? And I think one of the, one of the fun challenges for us is when we create a new, a new product, a new version of something, you know, we're bringing version one to the customer, not version 100. And, you know, in our hard surface cleaner line, for example, we sort of created the category of zero waste hard surface cleaners and zero plastic hard surface cleaners. And uh, and as we launched that category, we made an incredible number of mistakes uh, in terms of the packaging. The first package that we had was glass with no, no silicone sleeve on the bottom. So we had a high number of reports of those sliding right off counters and onto floors. And that was a problem we were able to fix. And you know, then we assumed folks were going to be using them for a single use. And so there was a, a, like there are multiple Etsy stores dedicated just to labels from early versions of Grove spray bottles that are hard to tell apart from one another. It's like a tiny cottage industry that grew up to fix one of our packaging problems. Um, but I think it proves the point that now we're in you know version 10 or 11 or something. And now that we're out here, the product actually meets consumer needs super well. And not to say there aren't you know a bunch of things that we're working to improve, but I think it's easy to take for granted the fact that oftentimes the product we buy is in its several hundredth iteration. And I think as we evolve, you know, one of the things I'm really grateful for is our consumers, they understand they're with us on the journey here and they understand that not every product is going to be perfect the first time. And they love seeing the progress that we make year after year after year to bring a better quality end product and consumer experience uh, to our customers every year. So, you know, I could tell tell dozens of stories, but but a lot of them really come with when you're launching V1. You know, it's got it's got a problem. I couldn't tell you what it is, but it's got one. Yeah, I don't even count versions anymore. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. You know the the funny story I'll add that's a little different is I'm I'm lucky enough within PNG to be a founder on a, a really forward looking brand that's called EC30, which is kind of this collection of home and um, body care products. But it, it, they're all these really neat solid form swatches, very light, um, and we send them through the mail exclusively and they're in these beautiful little bamboo boxes plastic free um we had no idea of what could happen in in the u.s postal service and you know how how things that were in parcel posts or in envelopes actually get damaged i mean my goodness what what seems like it should go through fine now has like god knows how many mail or things on top of it, magazines, you know, and by the time it gets to a consumer, we were shocked. 
it, you know, how it looked. So, it, you know, you want to be really sustainable and use as little as packaging as possible. But then, you know, version two is kind of like, okay, so we put it in a bigger cardboard box with, you know, cardboard um, protection around it. And that didn't seem right either. So, you know, the versioning on that has been like, how do we make something really small and efficient and strong uh, out of paper, which is an engineering feat for sure. That is so interesting that obviously the packaging most consumers are familiar with has probably been that way for, you know, dozens of years. And and now consumers are really along for the ride in this change. Uh, I think that there used to be a sort of trade-off between eco-friendly products and and efficacy, right? Where the really uh, environmentally minded consumers would be okay giving something up. But uh, do you find that that's changing? And is there even maybe more pressure on these kind of products and their packaging now? For us, you know, especially when we're doing this on well-known brands, it's like, you cannot trade that off. People, absolutely not. In fact, you know, if anything, I think it has to be almost better because with this sustainability framework comes like, wow, they really thought about this. And people, the same people who want sustainable packages also are thinking about, for instance, I want to wash my clothing in cold water because I'm saving energy that way. So like, I think almost we're being held to higher standards, which is great because we got to deliver on those. But there cannot be trade-offs, at least in our world. Yeah, I would echo that. I think the natural products industry, for better or worse, developed a reputation over the last 30 years for low efficacy and high sacrifice. And I think the green chemistry has come an incredibly long way from an efficacy perspective. You know, the Grove products, we don't just hold them up to the standard that natural products have historically been held up to. We hold our efficacy standards and third-party lab tests up to the same standards as the leading conventional brands. And I think that's that is part of what is driving extremely rapid adoption of natural products across the industry. You know, if you look across our home and personal care industries, only 13% of the market today is natural products, but 61% of those consumers just started buying natural products in the last two years. So it's really a recent phenomenon where the majority of folks who are moving in to more conscientious purchase patterns are coming. And the the reason they're staying, I think, is you know, it's not just sort of like nice packaging and a cool thing to get you to try it, but increasingly companies like Grove and several others out there are able to invest enough in green chemistry that we can bring a majority or 95 or sometimes 100% bio-based ingredient deck to market with efficacy that rivals the conventional brands. And so there is no sacrifice, right? You can get zero plastic packaging. You're Shirts come out of the laundry just as clean, or my two-year-old, you know, the spaghetti sauce comes off of his shirt. And we're over-delivering on price at the same time, right? So we can deliver a great experience for the consumer, great sustainability profile at a low cost. And I think that's never that's never really been possible before. And I think that's one of the big turning points that you're starting to see in the industry. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, it's, it's true for a new company as well as a big company. People won't forgive you that many times if the product is broken or if i mean i remember seeing a lot of sustainable products that were in molded fiber on shelves and they were leaking out of the side they had crushed sides um i think that as far i mean obviously i can't speak as much to what goes inside of these products but in terms of of 
kind of the theme of today, I guess. Yeah, consumers, it needs to be more compelling. I completely agree. I think it has to be something consumers feel is is a kind of step in towards the future. I don't think uh, they're willing to sort of, you know, take something that's super undesirable. It's a terrible experience for the customer. I think we need to find ways to replace what's work what what's working now with something better that is also sustainable. Um, and I think the thing that also consumers beyond that are even more unwilling to compromise on is sort of that their trust. I think that a lot of the time we've been sort of dis. I, I mean, I personally, and I'm sure many people in the audience looking are disillusioned with the amount of kind of claims of plastic free or kind of green or eco. And a lot of the time, uh, I mean, we saw a kind of recent survey about kind of entrenched incumbent brands when they make sustainable promises. A lot of consumers are very skeptical that those are even real. Um, I think that that's the benefit of being a new company is that you inherently kind of have a blank slate for reputation, but that does mean that also we get far less chances. You know, we have to really set the, if we, our goal is really to sort of set an environmental standard and be transparent and talk about how we make the product. And um, I think that that's really largely kind of a big driver going forward. It's the ones that are, the, the brands that are transparent and really are kind of make, providing a solution versus kind of greenwashing, which I think has kind of worked against the sustainable industry at least from a regulatory stance as well, a lot of the work we're doing is often pushed back on because they've seen other materials in the past, like whether it's PLA or some sort of uh, alternative material that wasn't what it promised to be. Um, and it promised to kind of be the silver bullet um, that, that comes along and then kind of ruins it for future kind of solutions that could have been uh, a good, played a really good part in this problem. So I think the, the two big things, yeah, I mean, consumers aren't really willing to compromise it needs to be better and and certainly also on on the kind of promises you're making from sustainability those need to be rock solid this episode of most innovative companies is brought to you by verizon the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com Consumers are seeing these sort of commitments, net zero, plastic neutral, plastic free by, by all these years. And I think it can feel a little bit like kicking the can down the road, right? We're facing this problem right now. So Stu, I know that Grove has a goal to be plastic free by 2025, and that's not far away. But still, for a company that really has sustainability from the start, um, why not tomorrow? What are the challenges with that? So I love this question. I think we have the shortest end goal to be to be plastic free of anyone else out there, and we're already carbon neutral uh, across scope one and scope two, and we'll be in scope three soon. So we we've taken pretty much every step we think is feasible today. And one of the nice things about being a younger company, and Grove has started you know, this decade, a thousand-ish employees. So we still are in the phase where we're we are very much growing and in development. But we've built the business to be able to support a business model that we think is regenerative for our categories over time. We don't have the technology to get to zero plastic today at any cost to the consumer. But the reason we made it in 2025 is it's long enough out there that we have a shot to take on real projects with real cost and real risk. And sometimes big projects take two, three years to get going. We want the incentive to take on a three-year project to replace the molded plastic in the pumps Right? That's a really hard challenge to replace the plastic nozzles on your spray bottle. Yeah, it may be reusable, but we want to get out of plastic there entirely. That's a multi-year project. And so we, we set the goal far enough out that we had incentive to take on big multi-year projects, but close enough that God willing, I'm still the CEO. And I look at 
many of the commitments and they could be much shorter commitments, but the challenge to a lot of those is very few of the people on those teams who made those commitments are going to be in seat when the the check comes due, right? When the commitment comes due. And so when I look out at, for us, I wanted, and our team wanted, this didn't just come from me, a commitment that we, the people in seat today, have to change our business to adapt to. And I I totally recognize, you know, I don't want to to throw shade on Procter. I totally recognize the scale of the challenge, the tens of billions of dollars of infrastructure that many other companies have in the ground makes it much more challenging for them to move as quickly as we can. But for us, our goal was what is the quickest this is theoretically possible and how do we hold the management team and you know all the way down to the most junior person accountable for making this goal happen such that when somebody starts at Grove and his or her or their first day is tomorrow, they know crystal clear what our ambition is and that we need to get to work. And so that was why we picked 2025. And I will say, I think our results in the first few years, we've saved tens of millions of pounds of plastic through our innovation in the first few years. And we are accelerating the pace at which we're launching zero plastic product, I think is a real result of you know, kind of being very clear about when the line in the sand was and to a certain extent, just really turning up the heat on the whole team to deliver it. I love that you have 2025 out there because it catalyzes, you know, imagination and it shows it can be done. And I am totally rooting for PHA because we need it. And so, you know, if, yeah, our goals are a little longer, like, you know, Ambition 2030, because we are very large. But the thing is that even if the people that made them are not in their seats anymore, um, being a publicly traded company, we have shareholders that we'll definitely remember. And it's funny because in a company so large that requires so much change to do, you know, sustainable packaging and products, 2030 seems like tomorrow. It's every day, you know, we're, we're managing against what we feel is, is like a really fast clock because there's so much technology we have to invent so much we have to do um, to source what we need to get there. So I think there's, each of us have a role to play in this whole transformation and you know it's it's really symbiotic it's pretty exciting i like i said i'm so glad that there's people with 2025 goals yeah i should say just to build on that one of the things that i do think is an advantage for new economy companies uh like us and and you know it sounds like for alex's company as well is we've built a stakeholder base and a shareholder base I and mean, capitalism plays a big role in this right you can't make these changes if they don't work economically. We've built a shareholder base that expects this and expects to prioritize long-term thinking over short-term thinking. And that setting that up front is a privilege that we have that many other industry participants don't have. And I think for one of the key learnings that I've experienced is setting that expectation up front, building to the extent your whoever your stakeholder base, shareholder base, is setting the expectation about when it's going to happen, what the PL impacts are going to be really does, it sounds boring, but pave the way for the size of investment and the speed of investment that's possible. Because the fact that we have permission to just run as fast as we can on this is really such a privileged place to sit in the industry. And I think does give us give us the sort of fertile from which innovation can really grow. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, we are kind of in a different position where we we are plastic free right now. Um, I think that's the thing that our technologies out there, they're expensive and very difficult. And I think that, you know, it, it, we we are very partnership focused long term, we would love to see the adoption of this by as many people as possible. We can't, you know, produce every plastic item that's packaging in the world. But I think what we can do is offer a case study and, and certainly get to the point where there's enough demand that then you know, then you can justify it to shareholders. If it's if it's the the most successful products again are the most sustainable, that's when you'll see real change. It it might be that they can't afford to rest on the status quo, and I think that's where the role of uh, consumers, like people in the audience, if you can start to move to more sustainable alternatives, move to some of these newer companies, it will allow these bigger companies like PNG to invest in these technologies because it's in their best interest. And if they don't, then it may be that the next PNG is a small company today. And I think that um, consumers, it, it, at certainly at a younger age, I mean, most reports, when you look at sort of 18 to 24-year-olds, more than sort of three quarters of them say that they only want to buy from environmentally conscious brands. Um, and I think that that kind of new generation of, of consumer looks as, at the environment as a stakeholder in a business. Um, so I think we're very optimistic because we're doing it right now. And I think that it's just a case of accelerating that. Um, and I think then you'll see most brands starting to adopt PHA. And behind the scenes, there are a lot of large companies already starting to test PHA and other alternative materials in their supply chain. So I think it's a matter of time. But I agree. I mean, I'm very skeptical about a lot of these pledges. I think for the most part, it's kicking the can down the road. And like Stuart said, these people might not even be there in five years. It's someone else who wants to kick the can down the road. And I think unless you take action right now, we don't really have time to kind of keep putting these 10, five-year goals in place. You really need to start that work now. And I think that it needs to be done with urgency as well. Something I think is is interesting about this, I touched briefly on, you know, recycling is is not a catch-all solution. There's problems with infrastructure, there's problems with consumer education about what they can, if they know what to do with these products. How are you all avoiding the same pitfalls with this new material? You know, I know that there's some compostable plastics that cannot be put in landfill or else they won't break down. And, and so how do you how do you control that end of life of your product and, and try to avoid the same pitfalls that recycling has had? Yeah, I mean, as a new material, it's, it is very difficult because we uh, we don't have the scale yet to necessarily open it up uh, to open up waste uh, management streams to PHA. There isn't a, an aftermarket for PHA, which fundamentally that's the issue with plastic today too. The reason it doesn't get recycled as much as it should is it's not really economically viable in the US. And it was, uh, we know we had higher recycling rates when we exported our plastic to China. And then in 2017, they stopped doing that. Um, most of the time now we just export our plastic to developing countries where they incinerate it. And if it's not incinerated, it ends up and, and actually, sorry, a lot of these countries don't even have meaningful waste management systems. So this plastic is just getting kind of put into someone else's backyard and then it easily can end up in rivers or oceans. And, um, you know, there's a lot of exciting innovation in ocean cleanup, but it would be great if they didn't have to keep cleaning up new plastic that is from the US that ends up in Indonesia or Singapore or wherever it might be. Um, but for us, at least, the, the, the PHA has every single end-of-life option possible. Uh, that is why we're excited about it and why we're focusing on it. Um, we can one day get to the point where, and the way PHA is made is that microorganisms, it's a form of carbon-based energy storage for microorganisms. So basically, uh, microbes that exist all throughout nature inside the human body, plants, animals, they produce this molecule called PHA. Um, so it's a natural process, but you can uh, mimic that in a bioreactor 
similar to how you'd see kind of beer or yogurt being made in a fermentation process. But you can feed it sort of any feedstock. They're even using wastewater, CO2, greenhouse gases. In our case, it's food waste from uh, after use cooking oil. But the, the great thing is that it really can sort of power a circular economy where it could be waste from a farm, it could be any sort of bio-waste. Um, but then obviously the, um, the end of life, uh, you, recycling, you could either recycle it how we do today, where you're simply kind of uh, making it into another product. Uh, you can actually take the, the PHA product and feed it to the same bacteria so that they actually generate more PHA. Um, so there's there's lots of different methods. And then also, if it exits a waste stream, it will biodegrade in natural environments. And the, it's completely consumed by these microbes that create it. So um, it, it really, it, you know, if, if the Pacific garbage patch was made of PHA, we wouldn't have a Pacific garbage patch. Um, so I think that it really accounts for for all the end-of-life options. But the, the challenge for us is getting to the point where there, there are more sustainable end of life. So ideally, we'd, today, a very easy one for us is to get this accepted into composting. Um, and in certain cities, they do have green bins where you can put yard and food, uh, yard waste and food waste. So that's something we're really trying to push for right now is getting uh, PHA products and Cove accepted in, in the green bin so that uh, consumers can dispose of this with their food waste as well. Yeah, I think this is a place where, you know, no, no one point in the supply chain can solve it. I think for, for us, the people who design products and packages, like we have to design for the end of life that's available. I mean, we, we can't just hope it's good, something is going to happen. Like every time we design a package, we have to know where it can go. And so, you know, I think if we're, if you use something like PHA, I think we have to be all working together to go, is that municipal, municipal composting? Are we going to find a recyclability um, you know, way that we can collect and reuse. It's just not enough to kind of say, we'll get to that later. No matter what package you're using, it's easier for paper, obviously, because there's so many uh, streams available. But I think yeah. the point is like, don't leave that out of your design. <laughs> it's the end of life. Yeah, it's it's not for us. I mean, that, that's the I think a, a good thing to remember is plastic recycling didn't always exist. They they created all these plastic items without recycling. And then in the 1970s, around the same time that Greenpeace was founded, there was this famous ad called Keep America Beautiful. And they had this really amazing cinematic ad with this sort of Native American protagonist canoeing down a river of polluted, uh, really polluted plastic items all around him. He turns to the camera with a tear in his eye and says, people start pollution, people can stop it. Um, and that ad really uh, was the kind of beginning of the recycling movement that lobbyists then pushed recycling into every city. And that's only been in the last sort of 30, 40 years. Um, but actually the, the, the ad was, a, was an Italian actor dressed as a, as a, uh, as that character, the campaign wasn't by activists, it was by the food packaging and beverage companies. Um, so I think that the, there's an exceedingly high bar today, obviously, for having every end of life option uh, figured out. And that's why we're, we're pushing for composting because it's an existing it's an existing waste disposal that we can do because the last thing we want is for this to end up in landfill. I, I think that we believe that landfills really shouldn't exist or we should really minimize the use of them. Obviously, there are going to be situations where some products are very difficult to to process but ultimately for a circular economy that's really what we're we're pushing for is to open to maximize the end of life of the products we use not to to limit them but there is also a period of time where you're going to have to get sufficient scale so there's there's a market for these products to recycle them yeah i should just i do think it's worth calling out that plastic recycling is distinct from other types of recycling and how much it's like a lie um i think 
you know, plastic recycling, you said, well, was not created by any sustainability industry, was created by people who had a significant financial interest in selling more plastic and convincing consumer it was, it was, it was okay to use forever garbage for a short-term application, right? That's, that's where the plastic recycling idea came from. And I think if you look at a material like aluminum, where there's 95% energy savings and when you recycle aluminum, it's infinitely recyclable. It's not a perfect solution, right? A perfect solution is, you know, how do we move towards zero packaging and complete zero? I mean, there's a lot of really awesome solutions on the way, but I think it's important that when we talk about recycling, we're specific about the substrates for which recycling is, is very real and viable and the categories where the idea, uh, you know, we're we're not we're not close to having a viable option for a circular plastic economy today. I mean, I don't know much about PHA. Sounds like you know clearly a lot more than I do. Um, but we're not close today there. But there are some materials, particularly aluminum. I think Lee Allen also mentioned paper significantly better. Glass takes more energy, but is also infinitely recyclable. There are a number of materials today where recycling is a very real option. I mean, the best option is reduction of the size, reduction of the packaging. But plastic is a distinct problem. And I think that's why we're spending so much time talking about it, because the existing infrastructure and the existing solutions for plastic recycling are just way more broken than they are in other categories. And even the simple switch for consumers from plastic to aluminum or plastic to glass, plastic to paper are significant steps forward in reducing, you know, the forever garbage that we're creating with our packaging. And it's, you know, those are not where we'll be in 50 years. I totally agree, but they're a really great interim step. And I think to your point earlier as well, start to create proof points and groundswell that make it clear to all stakeholders, hey, we got to, we got to all move in this direction together. Yes. So maybe recycling has a little bit of a, a, a dirty reputation now, but it's not completely off the table, depending on the types of materials you use. So going off of that, you know, you're all obviously not tackling this problem in a silo. What do you need from, from those outside of the CPG ecosystem, uh, from, you know, governments and legislation to really meet these goals around packaging? Yeah, I mean, the it, the it is inevitable we're going to exit this plastic era. I mean, with sadly, I think you know most eras are known by the materials they mastered. Whether it's the Iron Age, the the Bronze Age, I think we're sadly going to be the plastic age. But it is inevitable we will exit that. We're just going to run out of uh, fossil fuels to create these materials from. And even if we use sustainable feedstocks, it's the the component parts of these materials break down into harmful chemicals, which are you know kill, killing coral reefs. They are having a lot of detrimental effects on us physiologically. Um, so kind of, it is inevitable we will exit this period and, and we're already seeing a lot of government action, despite the fact there aren't really any alternatives that are available today. I mean, 140 countries have adopted some sort of plastic ban and there's a lot of effort in Europe really to ban specific plastic items that already, uh, consumers rely on every day. So I think really what we need is obviously the, the first and foremost, which we've talked about a lot of times is consumer demand. But I think also, um, which we've seen with the, with industries like electric vehicles is an incentivizing of, of adopting these new technologies and a disincentivizing of resting on the status quo. And I think right now, there's really only a sort of PR downside to to kicking these, these pledges down the road or missing them. It kind of goes unnoticed. I don't know that many people that are following sort of these large company pledges to the day and waiting. And if they miss them, it's a huge uh, kind of disaster. I think it can they can easily just brush this under and release a new one that seems more ambitious and excites consumers about the direction of the company. But 
Um, yeah, really, it's essentially just incentivizing kind of forward movements and, and disincentivizing kind of retroactively doing things that we know are harmful. Yeah, I think, you know, for, for a company as big as P&G, one of the things we need, um, this is almost a chicken and the egg, but so, you know, the, the traditional plastics polyolefins have had, gosh, nearly a hundred years to optimize, you know, the processes. Um, things like PHA, which are really intriguing new materials with different possible endpoints, haven't had nearly that long. So, you know, somehow we're going to have to catalyze the science that gets those efficient, lower cost, more accessible, better for more things. So there, there's a lot of science that still needs to be done to make those new and exciting materials practical. Um, and that goes, I think that stretches all the way back to universities and all the way forward to, you know, engineering companies that work with people like us to make, make that happen. Yeah, I, I agree with, with both of those. The things I would add, I think on the government side, there's a bill in California to significantly restrict what plastic products can have sort of recycling logos on the bottom. I think the explicit goal of the bill is to make non-recyclable things not carry the recycling logo, which seems like the type of thing that should already be in practice. Uh, so we we clearly support legislation like that. And I think anything around, we support government action to clarify to consumers the actual end of life for the product that they use, right? I think the fact that there's the recycling logo on the bottom of all this plastic stuff is that one of the key causes of consumer confusion here in the beginning. So I think that's a very concrete piece of legislation that we we are strong supporters and would like to see rolled out federally. And then I think overall, you know, what what we are seeing increasingly and I think we'll continue to see is that large corporations, small and large corporations, but understand that we are key stakeholders in the future. And ultimately over the long term, you know, it sort of doesn't matter how well we do if the planet's not in shape for us to for us to enjoy it. And so I, I am encouraged when I see, by what I see in both young companies and and even more mature ones, you know, doing, taking steps and having intention to drive drive real innovation here. Because I do think, you know, in twenty years it it will feel quite obvious just how big the consumer change is going to be. And I feel like, you know, obviously we're on a fast company panel here, so. You can guess what we think Manifest Destiny is. Uh, but I think very few companies over the next 20 years will succeed putting profit over purpose. I think just the opposite will have to be true for the brands that really win consumers' hearts in the next several decades. Yeah, one more thing, if we're really, and we are really thinking about, you know, how to keep, keep this planet healthy. I want to see um, more focus on total carbon footprint reduction you know, look at things like life cycle analysis of the whole the whole thing, the product, the package, how it's delivered. Because, you know, we, yes, we're still in a plastics age. I think realistically, that's not going to disappear tomorrow. So for whatever material you have, you need to use for the right packaging, I, you have to do the science that's about, you know, am I choosing the thing that's going to deliver the overall lowest carbon footprint when I consider, you know, everything from making it to using it to disposing of it, um, and that's that's not quite adopted widely in the U.S. yet. I think Europe's a little further along in that thinking, but we need to get there because it's math in the end, and we, you know, the choices you make should be the ones that are going to result in 
the lowest footprint you can deliver. Yeah, on that point, that is something to give credit to the very large companies that we see that we try to emulate is that there is a tremendous amount of engineering that has gone into making the, the plastic products you use today very sustainable from a carbon footprint standpoint. They're very efficient. They produce thousands in in matter of seconds, in, in some cases, depending on the application. So um, they're very thin as well. They're very light to transport. These are all things that go into kind of decades of, of research to get a material to be uh, optimized for performance, sustainability. Uh, we've really optimized plastic to the, the point where you can now have you know plastic water bottles that can be palletized with hundreds of kind of bottles on top of each other, but they're essentially like a plastic bag almost. They're so thin. Um, and I, th I think I 100% agree. It's it's kind of it's making way for that new uh, kind of space for technology where young engineers are excited about solving these issues. Where someone goes to college thinking I want to solve the issue of plastic pollution, uh, getting into material science, chemical engineering, into biotech, whatever it is. Because ultimately, these are the people that are going to be the ones that when that 2050 pledge rolls around, they're the ones going to be left with this problem. So I think. Uh, it's it's really just creating a, a case study for, for to inspire people. I think that's that's ultimately it is it's kind of we're beholden to younger people, younger companies a lot of the time that are going to be the ones to really clean up this mess. Um, and I think it's exciting because there is a lot out there, and uh, we're obviously super optimistic. But it's just making way for that. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you all so much. This was so interesting, and I'm so excited to see what you all keep doing when it comes to packaging.